This is Dave Chang. And Chris Ying. We are the hosts of Recipe Club. You may have listened to it before, but we are now back on the air, new and improved, with the same hosts that lose every week. I still don't know what the rules are because they've changed as well. Chris, can you give a quick rundown? Every week, we debate the best way to cook the things you want to eat. We take a user, listener, submitted recipe, and we all cook it with our friends, Priya Krishna, Rachel Kong, Brian Ford, and John DeBerry. And then we talk about what went right and what went wrong. No, I actually really don't want to do this podcast. (laughs) And they are hardly our friends. They are enemies. They are enemies. It's Dave's civil disobedience. If you want to see Dave Chang in an act of civil disobedience, tune into Recipe Club where he will not follow the recipe. I'm contractually obligated (laughs) to make this podcast. (laughs) But I'm here to have a good time. So listen to Recipe Club every week on the Ringer Podcast Network. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the Ringer's Prestige TV podcast feed. I am Van Lathan, joined by Charles Holmes of the Ringer Music Show and of this other little podcast um, called The Midnight Boys. Have you heard of that one, Charles? Do you like that one? Pew pew. Pew pew. I mean, I like it when uh, I'm not in the hot seat. (laughs) Ah, hot seat, hot seat. Um, You're hearing from me and Charles. You're used to hearing from us uh, when it comes to talking about all things fandom. Or as some people are saying right now online, all things Disney Plus, whatever. Um, But today we are talking about a different show outside of the fandom realm. That show is Atlanta. Now, I've been joined by Rembrandt Brown for the first two, first three episodes of this. Charles is filling in for Rembrandt right now. Don't know when we'll have Rembrandt back or if we'll get Rembrandt back. But I'll tell you one thing. There is not a better critic in the entire world than Charles Holmes of the Ringer Music Show. I, look, a lot of people might say, because a lot of people are lauding your your performance on The Watch. Oh, They're like, real? oh my, oh, Jesus Christ, people loved you on The Watch. You haven't, oh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't read your own, you don't read your own shit? No. <laughs> no, yeah, people loved you on The Watch. So maybe, maybe people want to hear more takes of Charles outside of the fandom space. You know what I mean? Maybe they want to hear what you got to say about stuff like Atlanta. Oh, I got so many takes for this episode. I'm so fucking excited. Yeah, it's great. So this episode is episode four, uh, The Big Payback. Now, we have once again deviated from the central narrative of the show, which is Van Ern, uh, Al, and um, Darius's exploits over in Europe. Uh, this episode 
takes a page out of episode one, which was a separate story that didn't have anything to do with uh, that narrative. Now, episode one ended up being a dream sequence uh, that Erm was having. This episode is actually not... I did not see anybody wake up or any tie back to it. Did I miss something? I watched it twice. Oh, I have a big... Like, I have a big theory. I, I Like, I'm not going to get into it yet, but I don't... Like, yes, episode one was a dream, but I think these two episodes are connected in more ways than one. It's not. We shouldn't think of it as a dream, but I'm going to get into that later. Interesting. Okay, so uh, the... Big Payback was written by Francesca, Francesco. I don't know why I went Francesca, uh, Francesca Sloan. And what it is about is this alternate history or alternate society where black people have been given the ability to sue <laughs> <laughs> for their slavery reparations. And you go through your family tree and you find out uh, that someone in uh, in your family was a slave. You find that slaver and you sue that slaver. And it, it's an amazing, it's amazing device because they never explicitly tell you that. They use the storytelling of the show to have that dawn on you. Uh, it starts off, by the way, it, it, it stars Justin Bartha from The Hangover uh, who has this, super waspy thing about him. It is actually perfect casting. It begins it's in the perfect coffee. casting. I didn't even like hate him throughout the episode. There's Never something did. kind of like like likable about him in this weird way, even as he squirms. Oh, wait a minute. I hate him. I'd argue that I empathized with him. You empathize. You kind of feel bad for him. <laughs> yeah, like, I, like, hate him. I'd argue that I felt, I felt bad for him. I was almost scared for him at times, which is to me, to me, to me, it's the genius of the episode that there were parts where I was wondering if I was on his side. They disarmed me from a lot of my anger oh, and resentment I, I from I was America. like, as a black person, I'm just like, I am not supposed <laughs> to be feeling bad for this right. man. Like I, like, I should be with Shaniqua. I'm like, yo, you're about to get paid. But I'm like, damn, I kind of feel bad for him. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you why this show is so well written. Um, a little shout out, hat tip to the writer, which we try to do every single time that we're on this prestige uh, TV feed. Through device, they show you how awesome it is to be a white man in the very first scene. He is in um, line at a, uh, at a coffee shop, and he is completely not paying attention. He's listening to NPR. Very white thing to do. Um, in Atlanta. He's listening to, like, a New York NPR station in Atlanta, which I find right. hilarious. <laughs> right. He's listening to NPR, which tells you a little something about this character. Number one, this guy's probably a liberal. You know, he's probably not the guy that you would typically think would get kicked in his ass by uh, by a sort of black ascendancy. You know what I mean? Like a black ascendant, should I say? Like he's he's the kind of guy that you would expect to be on your side if you you know believe in those sort of political affiliations and those people's ability to be allies. He's listening to NPR. NPR's you know that's left liberal radio. So he's probably all right. You know what I mean? But hey, while he's in line, uh, a woman looks past a black guy who is standing in front of him 
to take his order. He was looking at some cookies and he inadvertently steals them. So right away, two examples of privilege. He inadvertently steals the cookies and looks, and when he's in the car, he's like, oh my God, look at this. And then he just eats them. Like the cookies represent to me what it means to be white in America. You didn't mean to do something bad in the past, but it happened and you're eating the cookies anyway. <laughs> I mean, he, it, it's funny. We see, we have two cookies in this episode. We have the one he steals, then we have the one in the hotel and this symbol of a cookie of like white liberals kind of always wanting a cookie for right. just basic human decency. And the thing that I find that's hilarious is even er, like after immediately after that, they signify in this very short scene that he's also an ally because he's in this elevator with his friend and like his friend is like overtly like fuck these reparations like did you hear what this black guy like did to tesla blah 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 and the guy is kind of on black people's side he's like no i kind of get it i like i'm not that mad at it and then slowly the writing is so good you slowly start to see sin after sin after sin that he commits that shows you he's as not as much of an ally as we think he is. Well, this episode to me is very much about the cost of allyship. All right? It's very much about the cost of allyship because, look, everyone is down for uh, building a new playground until it's got to it's gotta be out of your taxes. Yeah. Everyone is down for being an ally until it means... Now, look, there are different ways to be an ally. I'm not saying you have to give up all your money and and go start waiting tables. Shout out to all my servers out there um, in order to do that, right? But everyone is down for it until they have to pay for it. Because <laughs> it, 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 it seems like the, the reality is that this system is one big, gigantic, fucked-up machine. And in order to dismantle that machine, eventually you're going to have to get some oil and you're going to have to get some grout and you're going to have to get some grit on your own hands. And you can't just say, yeah, it should be dismantled and go let somebody else do it. No, if you really want to take it apart, you're going to have to get your shit fucked up. And when you stick your hand in a machine, you risk losing a limb, you know? So like when I, when I watch this episode, it's just the stakes get higher and higher and he gets pushed to the brink of trying to figure out what it is that uh that he's willing to sacrifice or what it is that he's willing to do without uh because the rabbit has the gun now see the the first the first thing that happens that made me realize that what they're doing in this episode is so genius is that he picks up his daughter from school and he the daughter's like, somebody at school said I'm a racist. Is that true? And this is when the facade slowly, slowly, slowly starts cracking. There's like three major sins that mm-hmm. he commits in this episode. The first one is, he's like, you're not racist. Listen, that stuff happened a long, long time ago. We're Asha Hungarian. <laughs> we were yeah. enslaved during the Byzantine Empire. Right. And this, I do this with white people all the time. I always ask them. I'm just like, do you think you're racist? And 100% of the time, white people are like, no, I'm not racist. They, like, they clutch the pearls like, no, I can't, I can't be racist. And then I laugh and I'm just like, I ask that question to white people all the time and they always say no. So if no one's racist, why is there still racism in the world? And then it dawns on them and I'm like, mm-hmm. part of being a good ally sometimes is realizing that whether it's overt or not, just by 
you being white, there's privilege. There is a way of thinking that automatically makes you racist. And once you admit it, you're able to see in a new lens. And I love the fact that like, while he's an ally in the sense of he's not personally mad at Black people fighting for reparations, the minute it starts to encroach on his life, to your point, everything starts crumbling about his worldview. And that is Mm -hmm. brilliant to me. Absolutely. Also, I am very intimately in tune with that idea that it's hard to admit your implicit biases because I'm a man. And I think that I am the biggest feminist in the world. But every now and again, a woman will look at me and be like, hey, Van, Mm -hmm. you're mansplaining this to me. And I'll be like, no, no, I'm not. You're talking about somebody else, not me. I'm Gloria Steinem. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, they'll, and they'll continue to do it, but it's it's hard to look at yourself in the mirror. And this episode forces him to, by taking him down to the base level of who he was, he he had the quintessential American uh, existence, um, strained relationship, but maybe they were going to get back together. The, the, his little girl also tells him that mommy put on perfume before he came. His life was looking up, and he was going to his cubicle job feeling pretty good about himself. Yeah. And in comes Shaniqua. Uh, Shaniqua comes into this episode as an absolute tornado because he starts to see, in, in his job, he's seeing that people are losing their jobs, right? There's going to be layoffs. There's going to be layoffs because the job themselves have been, the job themselves, the company themselves, shall I say, has been hit by one of these uh, slavery suits. So because the company has been hit by one of these slavery suits, now they have to lay people off. Okay, so he sees people crying. He sees around him not just individual sort of, uh, uh, he doesn't see just individual ramifications. He sees societal and communal ramifications, which is another parallel to being black. Being black doesn't mean that you just go through stuff personally. Uh, It means that you see people in proximity to you, have it tougher and have it harder because they are black. And a lot of times you wear that pain. Like it becomes a part of what you are. Even if you've never been called a nigger before, it still stings when you see somebody else called a nigger, right? Because yeah. you're one, right? So, so, <laughs> so, you know what I mean? So it's like, uh, so it, it hurts. And that's something that a lot of times is difficult to explain to, to people who aren't black. And that starts to happen to him. He's, he sees other people crying, other people distressed because of a situation that they're in that he has a lot of, like I said, proximity to. Gets home, Shaniqua comes to his house. And Shaniqua is absolutely the absolute stereotype of the loud black lady that don't give a fuck about his tunnel vision on what it is that she wants. And she comes into his house and she's scouting it because that's where she's going to live after she sues him because she finds out that his ancestors were in fact slave owners. So one thing I want to bring up is that what's so brilliant about this episode is that it unfolds almost like a horror movie or like a movie where... It's scary! It's scary or like a pandemic movie where like you don't want to catch this catch this virus, you want to catch this curse. And I want to bring it back to the first episode because the white man from the first episode who's on the lake talking to the black man, we learn that his name is Ernest in this episode. And he says, quote in that, 
they paid to be white. With enough blood and money, anyone can be white. But the thing about being white is it blinds you. It's easy to see the black man as cursed because you've separated yourself from him, but you don't know, but you don't know you're enslaved just like him. So this whole episode to me is this curse. You don't want to get infected with this curse. And when Shaniko like bangs on his door, he realizes that, oh, I've caught it. The woman that he walked by at work who was crying because she lost everything, like, he realizes, oh, shit, now I'm cursed. And now Mm -hmm. the thing that I, the second sin that he commits in this episode is that we know what it is for a white person to call, to threaten to call the police on a black person. So the Uh first thing, instead of trying to understand Shaniqua and why she's on his doorstep and everything, he's like, I'm going to call the police if you don't get out of here. And right then I was just like, ooh, you don't know what you're doing right there. Right now you feel so threatened by this curse. Instead of trying to understand somebody who's also been cursed from birth, you're just threatening to call the police on her. And I'm like, that is brilliant writing. It is, but it also sums up the conundrum that sometimes we're placed in. Sometimes it seems like in these issues, there's no right way to act, right? Sometimes it seems like there's no right thing to do because if someone barges into your home and starts filming you, of course you're going to want to call the police. Like, of course you're going to want to call the authorities, right? It's not what you should do, but it's not like necessarily the wrong thing to do. And doing something like that, well, I don't know if 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 it's not what you should do either. I just know that it's a much more dangerous predicament for one person to be in than for the other person to be in, right? And it would take you really understanding the historical significance of what uh, she's talking about and the present-day ramifications of it for you to want to have that conversation. See, if he didn't think that his ancestors were from the Byzantine era and he was absolutely 100% uh, one of the good guys, he might be compelled to, to enter into a conversation with her, but because he doesn't, he won't. And so that is a huge, huge hurdle to jump over. Yo, 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 now I'm one of the good guys. You're impinging, you're infringing upon my, um, my space and my beliefs. What I got to do is call the bigger white man. I'm a white man, but the ultimate white man is the police. So I got to call the bigger <laughs> white man to come get you out of here. Doesn't work. She comes back like a specter. By the way, in this episode, Blackness is very this is this episode is a horror episode of television, I believe. And blackness is very, very, very much the Spectre and the Freddy Krueger of this episode, I'd say. So here's the thing. I want to push back on the horror aspect because one thing that Donald Glover said in the press tour is he's like, when they were talking about this season, he wanted to do a season where we just want, he said, quote, we just wanted to make a black fairy tale. And the thing that I walked away in this episode thinking is. A black fairy tale is a joyous story for us and is a white nightmare. Because at the end of the episode, we see this, we see this vision of white people serving black people at this very ritzy restaurant. And when I saw that, that was a powerful image because you don't see that a lot. When it's this ritzy thing, it's like you see people of color as the servers and white people have generational wealth as the people eating. And I was just like, oh no, this is a nightmare through the white gaze because white people don't want to catch the curse of having to pay for reparations. But but for black people, this is a fairy tale. This is something like, Mm. oh, if this happened in my life, my life would be fundamentally better than it is right now. So 
is it's only a horror story depending upon which gaze you're seeing the episode through. Fantastic point. Let me tell you, let me tell you why I stick to the horror situation. The gaze of the episode comes from your protagonist to me, right? It comes from the, your 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 main character. And in this case, it's Justin Bartha's character. I'll use another book. I'll use a book that I read um, as an example of this. Uh, a book called I Am Legend. Have you ever read the book? No, I know the story, but I have never read the book. Right. So in case people have never read I Am Legend, I Am Legend is about Robert Neville, who, you know, there was a Will Smith movie that's loosely based on it. It's really not the same thing. And Robert Neville is a human being. Um, and he spends his days vampire hunting, basically. He spends his days going around, uh, finding vampires, stabbing them up, all right, killing them, because he is essentially one of, if not the, last men on Earth. So his job, there's been a disease, there's been some situation where the vamp, where everybody's turned to vampires, and he's going to go try to kill as many vampires as he can. Well, we spend all of this time with Robert Neville. We watch Robert Neville kill vampires. We watch Robert Neville do all this. They eventually, the vampires, uh, eventually, vampire-like creatures or whatever, they eventually capture Robert Neville. They captured Robert Neville, and they have him, and he communicates with them, talks about them, and learns them. And what we end up learning at the end of it is the monster in this story is Robert Neville. Because Robert Neville, when, when, when the name of the story, I Am Legend, is about him. He is their monster. The mm. Humanity has evolved to being uh, all vampire-like, blood-sucking creatures. And he is the last person that is left behind in that evolution. And so whereas we understand him because he is actually like a human being and we are human beings, like watching what he is going through, we don't get that he's going around killing them. They didn't ask to be turned. They didn't ask to be this. That's just what society is now. So if the, if the purview was flipped, we would get that. In this purview, it starts off with the, a, a relatable guy, a guy who's had some relationship problems, a guy who's just a regular dude. So it's hard to see that what's happening to him until we get to the end of the episode. And also by making Shaniqua herself um, as intruding and boisterous as she is a complete stereotype, right? It's easy to feel, damn, I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me too. And I'll give you another scene that kind of brings us around. Later on, he goes to her Instagram. And when he goes to her Instagram, he sees her taking her kids to ride bikes. And being in the Instagram for him, it humanizes her. Yeah. It takes her from being so, like you start to see that what she really wants is a better life for herself and her children. Which even though she was explicitly saying that, when she was in his apartment, it's hard to feel it because she seemed so unconcerned with the fact that she was in somebody else's home. I mean, it's also her excitement seems so stereotypical, but it's like for her, she's won the lottery. A white of person course. wouldn't uh, like a white person wouldn't understand that because if you've had generational wealth your whole life, you like it's something you take for granted. If a black person wins the lottery, you're like, this is like this will like foundationally change not only my life, my kids' lives, their kids' lives. But I want to go back to one of the scenes that like was the third thing that he did that I was like, this is hilarious because it's happened to me. Is he goes to work and like he's talking to this his uh this woman 
And she's he's about to ask a question. He's like, yeah, you're wondering where all the black people are. And I think it's like Willie and Lester, I think their names are the only people yeah. who show up. And he goes to ask Lester about like what he should do. And oh, the funniest the funniest thing happens is like Lester's like, hey, you know, I, I've been raised by black women my whole life. You know, you just got to listen to her and give her as much money as she asked for. And then he does this thing that is so whack where he asks the black person for his opinion. When he doesn't hear what he wants, he goes to his white friends to be like, what should I do? And this exact thing happened to me when I used to work at a charter school because it was a charter school run by a bunch of white people serving predominantly black Hispanic children and Philando Castile died and like I was on the verge of getting fired but Philando Castile dies all the kids in the schools are are just like freaking out rightfully so Um, I'm working on social media and like one of these heads of these departments like Charles we need to see you in our office I'm like all right sure 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 I'm not popular at this company and they're like Charles we know this is a rough time. And I'm like, yeah, no shit. They're just like, what should we do? What should we say to the, what should we say to the people? I'm like, what do you mean? What should we say? They're like, we need to release a message. And I'm like, oh, like, uh, okay. And they're like, we're thinking that we should have a Martin Luther King quote. Which quote should we use? And I'm just like, I don't know if we should go with Martin Luther King. They're like, why not? Everyone loves Martin Luther King. And I'm like, well, you know, when a black person dies, White people always bring up Martin Luther King. I'm like, if we're trying to inspire all of the black children, like, let's maybe show another civil rights activist. Like, let's just show that we're not going to the only black person that white people know. And they're like, you're totally right, Charles. You're totally right. Absolutely. I I leave the meeting. And then the white people have their own meeting. And I see that they're having their own meeting. And then later they just put up the Martin Luther King quote and I'm just like, oh, I'm just like, this is exactly what happens when you're working. It's like they have the meeting with the black person to say they had it, but when they don't get what they want, white people are like, all right, I'm just going to ask the white people and we're just going to make the decision anyway. Right, because, because like, like, what, what white, first of all, I want to say two things. Number one, that's a hilarious story, right? (laughs) And number two, you said something very important. Uh, you said born with generational wealth. And a lot of people are going to look at the episode and be like, he was born with generational wealth. He doesn't have generational wealth because he didn't look to be wealthy. Generational wealth means being born with anything that was handed down to you. Yes. Like, my parents love them. Left me nothing, really. Like, I don't, I like, they gave the, the only thing that I have, they weren't given anything. So, like, so bust this. So, my parents weren't, like, there was no one, like, we don't have, like, like, like we don't have even, it's not like, I'm not going to get a house from them. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get, uh, like, a head start or anything. Like, my parents did well, but there were, there were things that happened dur- during that time. And from them on, so, like, if you got a car from somebody, if you got a, any of the things, these are called in vitro, in vitro uh, transfers. Um, even if somebody was able to pay for your college. You know what I mean? Like, if, if you got a little loan when you were starting off in life, if, you, if your parents were able to give you X amount of money, you know what I mean? Like, by and large, now I'm not saying this is true for all black people, not, a, not, a, not even, right? By and large, black people don't have access to those type of transfers, and white people... And other places, they it's been a large part of the way American wealth is transferred. You know what I mean? So, 
So uh, there's a significant wealth gap, and it has to do with that. Number two, to your point, is that sometimes it seems like um, the number one thing that white supremacy really wants to be is coddled. Yes. Like, we got drugged through the mud, but white people want to be told they're okay. Once it, like, like, once again, I understand this as a man. As a man, I just want women to say I'm one of the good ones, right? Never, ever, ever actually, uh, like, pay attention to the fact that being one of the good ones means you have to look at things in such a fundamentally different way that it might be uncomfortable to me. But I just want to be told, hey, you're cool, right? I want to be coddled as a man even though I have all of the power. And that's what happened with him. He didn't want to hear the answer that, there was not really going to be a way to to throw her off. You're going to have to confront whatever's happening with her uh, in some sort of way. He wanted to hear an answer that made sense to his sense of his sense of uh, of, of privilege. So we're moving through the episode now. We get to the point to where he is uh, his wife, who is now Peruvian. She was white yesterday. His ex-wife. That she was wants the to go hilarious. Through. That was the funniest moment of the fucking whole thing. Yeah. Wait. Before before you describe, did you catch the little text exchange where the skin color emoji that his wife used changed? It was white <laughs> <laughs> earlier in the day, <laughs> and then she turned it to brown. When she right. <laughs> when she figures out she's Peruvian, I'm like, that's such yeah. a small detail, but it's fucking hilarious. And once again, that it's a small detail, but it's a huge societal thing. Is like. Is 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 like the only time the only time like people don't want to be white is when they rapping. You know what I mean? Like you know, it's, just, it's like you white at the bank, but when you're on the block freestyling, yeah, you know, like my people, and you get weird questions asked. Like people would be like, "Yo, man, I'm, I'm my people from France." I'd be like, "Yeah, they white." I'm my people from Spain. I'd be like, "Yeah, they white. They white." You're white. Like, nah, man. Like, nah, man, he French. I understand, like, you're not white American, <laughs> but, like, people be like, nah, that, that, he ain't white. Nah, you're nah, white, white people, white. White people have, like, a little Spanish, and I'm just like, that don't mean you're not white. Like, white people can be Spanish. <laughs> like, you're like right. do I have to explain whiteness? Right, Dude, like, right. no, 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 man. Like, my great-great-grandfather spoke Spanish. I'm like, that has nothing to do with it, bro. Right. I'm sorry. Like, so, like you fucking, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, Sammy Sosa speaks Spanish, and at one point he was black, but now he is. <laughs> Yo, don't do that to see. <laughs> but but now he isn't. He, he, Sammy made his choice, bro. I'm sorry to tell you, Charles. <laughs> Sammy made his choice. Anyway, all right. So uh, he comes home, and I knew what was happening as soon as I heard the song. I knew what was happening in front of his crib. <laughs> He's driving back home, and we hear Key Sweat. Make it last forever. As soon as I heard make it last forever, I knew people were cooking out. I started laughing as soon as I heard it. Like, I knew people were cooking out. I knew what was happening to his crib. And I'll give you another example of why I feel like this episode has a horror tenor to it. He drives up to his home. He sees what's going on, right? He, they're outside. They're cooking out. Key Sweat is blasting. Uh, it looks like a lovely scene. Damn, I can't wait for summer to come. Um, it looks like a lovely scene, right? She sees him. She's at his house. She sees him. She looks at Justin. Justin, uh, I'm assuming, is one of her sons or one of her nephews or something like that, right? Uh, Justin or Jamal? Excuse me, Jamal. She looks at... She, no, it was Justin. Name. It was Justin. 
What was Justin? Yeah. And she looks at him and she sends Justin after him. When Justin starts running after him, Justin looks like this unstoppable, unbreakable force of blackness that is running down a car for a time. He looks like the African T-1000 <laughs> from the Terminator. And, and they and and they they intentionally to me framed, wrote, and shot that scene to show the fear in our in in, in Justin Bartha's eyes uh, because there was a horror entity chasing him. Yo, but one thing that happens after that is when he goes to the hotel, we get we get the return of the white guy from the first episode whose name is Ernest, which is funny because that's the name of the main character who Donald Glover plays. And they have this conversation where Marshall, the protagonist of this episode, is melting down. He's losing everything. And Ernest, or E, as he likes to be called, says this thing that's so poignant. He says, you're separated from your wife. She's taking the kid. Now she has to be raised without a father. She has to build wealth and success from the ground up, similar to the position we put them in, but we're going to be okay. And the thing that I think is radical about that is that even in this world of reparations, even in this world where he's going to have to take 15% out of his out of his wages, he's fine. White people will be fine. This world isn't a world where black people have taken over. This is a world where like black people can start approaching being on an equal status. As he says later, the curse has been lifted from her, from all of us. We were running from it, but now we're free. The curse the haunted aspect of this entire episode is just like, once you start repaying what you owe, we can start having conversations that we we will never have until white people as an entire, you know, community race start being like, yeah, we do owe black people something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing about that, though. What happens to that gentleman after that? He kills himself. He blows his brains out. He recognizes that the world would be a fundamentally different world, maybe a better world, if we confronted these things. But he makes the decision that it's not a world he wants to live in. And that, to me, is the most powerful moment of this, something I didn't see coming. He sits down there. We've seen this character twice, right? We've seen this character before when he knew all about what was going on at Lake Lanier, right? And after he, what he turns into in Lake Lanier is a specter, right? In this situation right here, I was watching this scene so uneasy because I kept waiting for him to do something scary, bro. And I don't like that type of shit, dog. <laughs> I'm going to keep it gangster with you, bro. Like, I don't like, fuck with that horror shit. Bro, I, like, bro, look, man. Like, there's a... I, I told this pe- to people before. Twilight Zone, the movie. The first scene of Twilight Zone, the movie, Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd are, are driving down the... um the street and they're uh they're talking about different television shows and then Dan Aykroyd says you know what television show I loved I love Twilight Zone it was so scary and they talk about an episode of Twilight Zone Dan Aykroyd looks away and he goes you want to see something really scary and Albert Brooks goes sure and then Dan Aykroyd uh, goes you got to pull over the car it's really scary he goes like wow I have to pull over the car like, yeah so he pulls over the car and Dan Aykroyd turns around like this 
And then when he turns back, he's a monster. And he fucking <laughs> kills the guy. I was fucking... I don't give a fuck, okay? How old are you? Bruh, like nine. <laughs> like, bruh, terrified, bruh. Terrified. <sighs> like, terrified. Like, maybe younger, to be honest with you. Terrified when I first saw Twilight Zone, the movie, which is a great movie, by the way. And that was that, that scene before reminded me of that, and I was very pissed. Just to let people know, because I'm watching fucking Atlanta, and I didn't sign up for that, watching Atlanta. So I was very upset. So this entire scene, I kept waiting for this guy to turn into something fucking scary. So I was only half watching it, okay? And I was only half watching it, trying to look at it, because I was scared of him. I was very afraid. And then he gets up, he walks away, and he killed himself, and that was scary. And, oh, and I so saw that I, coming. I, I saw that coming once he oh, walked you saw out. That coming? I'm like... Dog, he's either gonna drown himself or he's gonna do something. Because you see him putting the gun. I'm like, all right, he's, he's yeah. What you put it? So it, it ended up being a world that he didn't want to live in, that he maybe couldn't live in. So he recognized that that world had to come, but he wanted to be somebody else's burden, which to me symbolizes sometimes how white America looks at racism. It's like. Yes, we have to do this, but it's somebody else's problem, and I don't need to be a part of the solution. He essentially took himself out of being a part of the solution. And do you know in the end of this episode who ended up being the hero? Justin Bartha. He ended up being the hero because he came around to a fact that, look, this is life now. This is the world. This is what it is, and I'm going to be a part of it. He didn't seem embittered at the end of it when his job situation had changed. He didn't see embittered. This was the reality. And the reality was this was something that he had to do. All right? And then you see him in the server and you see the beautiful scene at the end of the episode. Um, and that brings us to the end. Charles, what else you got on the uh, what else you got on that? Also, I think going back to Donald Glover being like we wanted to make a black fairy tale, there's so many connections between this episode and the first episode. Did you notice that the meal that the father is so excited to cook for the daughter is spaghetti? What spaghetti means to a white family is different than what spaghetti means to a black family. If you're if a black person's like we got spaghetti in the fucking fridge, like god damn it. Like yeah. spaghetti again mm-hmm. for <laughs> for mm-hmm. the for the daughter. She's like, "Oh, yeah, spaghetti garlic bread." Same thing right. with Ernest showing up again. I'm like, "Oh, is Ernest an actual person in this or E as he likes to be called or is he like this this season is set in Europe is he like a Grimm's fairy tale type person who is like moving in between these stories telling you what the what the moral is because in the first yeah. episode he tells you what the moral of the story is in the beginning and in uh-huh. this episode he tells you what the moral of the story is at the end and it makes me wonder is E going to keep returning I think so. In other episodes, and he is like the fairy godmother, the the type of person who comes down from above, and it's like, no, this is the moral, this is what you're supposed to learn from the story that's unfolding for us. To, to me, he's Donald Glover. After I watched Donald Glover interview himself in Interview Magazine, he's Donald Glover. He is literally looking at us and parroting to, back to us what the uh, what the uh, the intentions of the of the show are he's he's contextualizing the world that we're in where we're away from Ern and Van and the rest of them. look we haven't talked we haven't talked about the absence of Ern and Van and and um and Al 
um, and Darius in this episode. And I don't really want to because I didn't miss them. There was nothing so crazy that happened in uh, The Old Man in the Tree that we had to come back and like get answers for it. And as long as that's the case, as long as they didn't leave us on the cliffhanger, sure, I'm kind of wondering why Van is acting weird and not answering Ern's calls and stuff. But I love this. As a matter of fact, cast my vote for a whole eerie spinoff show of one-offs, a horror type of anthology series, right, of one-off shows that deal in with race in America, sexism in America, in this uh, almost scary, ethereal, cool way. I would, I would watch this every fucking Thursday, man. Let's, but let's say what the audience might think, because like I thought this was a phenomenal episode. Um, but I was there was a little tinge of me who was, who was like, man, I like, I still want to know what's going on with Paperboy, Donald, Van. Um, and Darius, but I was just like, this is still a great episode. Do you think that this season is going to start pissing people off because yeah. they're not getting the thing that they want? Yeah, and I think that this is kind of what Donald Glover was talking about in that interview where he basically said that, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, Anthony Bourdain would eat a, a smash burger and Anthony Bourdain would eat Wagyu, but uh, one is not better than the other. They're just a different experience. I think that in this season, they're trying to take people on a different experience. This is a wholly different show from season one. And even season two, it's a wholly different show. Wholly different show. The narrative is disjointed a little bit in a way that uh, used to be the outlier of the seasons, but now it is the it's sort the of spine. main... Yeah, the, 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 the spine of them. Uh, thank you for that. Well said. So, like... For me, I don't have a problem with it. I think the audiences will have a problem with it. I do also think that these four actors are busy these days, and these episodes where they're not in them is a way for them to shoot Atlanta, but not have to uh, cast aside some of their other commitments to to have the show going. Oh, so, also, it's COVID in Europe. So they were filming in Europe during COVID. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this was just kind of like a... It's really hard to get these four people together at the same time during COVID and shit like that. I will say, like, before we go, do you think that Donald Glover's interview magazine interview complicates this because I saw a lot of black women rightfully so pissed off at him like they're like the 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 people are not happy with Donald and I was watching this episode being like does the tenor of this episode change for people knowing that a lot of a lot of black people and a lot of black women rightfully so are a little are a little pissed so let me bring up something that is uh that is a little troubling I love Donald Glover okay Van is in this episode. A van is in this show, Zazie Beats, and mm-hmm. she is played uh, in this show as a very pragmatic, uh, very even keeled, very sort of um, heady black lady, right? Culture mm-hmm. stuff like that. She is fair skinned. I'd have to go back and look, but when you see darker skinned women. In this show, they are seem to be they seem to be portrayed in a different way. I'd have to go back and look at it every time. If you remember, they went to a party, and I 
This was one of the worst scenes in the history of television. I love Atlanta. They went to a Drake party. When they went to a Drake party, there was an interracial couple there. And one of the women that Van was with accosted this interracial couple. And she looked unhinged. She looked angry. She looked, uh, she was almost feral in the way that she attacked this, this couple and this white lady. Specifically, the white woman came across as completely in control of her emotions, and the black lady came across as something that is uh, like emotionally shattered, right? Um, we saw the sister earlier on in this one. I will say that the, uh, the, the social worker in that episode was a black lady who seemed cool, um, uh, or I don't want to say seemed cool, who seemed to be written not in this way. She was the uh, hero of the episode. She was the hero of the episode. And the, the 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 mother, though, was portrayed as somebody who was like, yo, take my son, whip the son at school, all of that stuff. And then you have Shaniqua in this one who is portrayed in a way and you have to dig deeper to figure out that she's not a way. If I was a black woman, I would be uncomfortable with some of this. And, and, and given what he has actually said, first of all, huh, fuck that. I don't have to be a black woman. I'm a black man and I am uncomfortable with some of this. And I truly believe that as much as I revere Donald Glover as a as a creative, as much as I revere Donald Glover as for everything that he's been able to do both in film and on this show, he has a black lady problem. He does. Hmm. But I, I I like he has a black lady problem and he tiptoed around it in the interview. And he said um uh, I don't want to take up too much oxygen. I'm sorry, Charles. Like and he said He's asking himself the question, are you using black women to question my blackness? Uh, you don't have to be dating a black woman uh, necessarily, but you do have to respect them and seemingly give them some sort of grace, oxygen, and latitude to be who they are. And these sometimey caricature type for like uh, personifications of them, portrayals of them, it's a little troubling. What do you think? I think what we're starting to see is that when when Atlanta happened, we had this kind of like auteur boom where you had a lot of white writers and a lot of uh, white publications lauding Donald Glover, Issa Rae, Jordan Peele, all these people, and rightfully so, from making kind of these transformational TV shows, movies, and in a lot of the white people reviewing it were like, oh, we've never seen anything like this. If, we, if you're black, you're just kind of like, yo, this is all of this shit is dope, but like, come on, these aren't the first black geniuses we've ever had in film or TV. And I think you're starting to see that like, yo, Donald Glover has blind spots. Issa Rae is going to have blind spots. Jordan Peele is going to have blind sure. spots. It doesn't take away from their genius. It's just kind of like, it's part of the black experience where sometimes I'm like, I'll read Donald, a Donald Glover interview and a bunch of the interview, I'm like, dog, this shit is tight. Like, a lot of this shit he's saying is true, you know? What he's telling, like, yo, Zendaya, it's time to come to death row. It leaves him, leaves him behind. I'm like, that's hilarious. But there's mm-hmm. other parts of the interview where I'm like, pardon my, pardon my French, but nigga, you tripping. Like, come on. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and that's fine. Like, I don't think of him as an auteur. Like, he's it's a like, person. It, yeah. He's a person. Like, yeah. yo, Issa Rae, Donald Glover, Jordan Peele, they're dope, but they they ain't like Jesus Christ. They have blind spots. So I can think that like he's a genius in this one field. And sometimes when he says certain shit, I'm like, all right, you know, ooh, as a people, we just going to have to deal with this. Like <laughs> the barbecue. 
But yeah, yeah. like I like in closing, You're I right. thought that this episode was genius. I love this episode. I think that if you're disappointed that you didn't see like Earn and Paperboy and Darius and Van, I get it. But like, yo, give this episode a chance because I really do think what they're doing in this episode is like some really just high level TV shit. And I was, I was enthralled. I think it's, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. And by the way, these episodes are the ones that I find myself rewatching. This one in three slaps. They're like these weird, I'm telling you, I'm here for this. <laughs> we, like, I, I'm here for this. I love the Twilight Zone. I love Black Mirror. And we've never had a show with a black voice that was like that. And I've always been asking for it. I love vignette horror movies. I love, I, I love all of those things. We've never really had it. And I'm telling you right now, there's something here. There's something here, and they, they're hitting it. They're doing it. I'm glad they are. All right, that is Charles Holmes. He is uh, the host of the Ringer Music Show. He is also one half, one fourth of the Midnight Boys. Pew pew, pew pew. Over on the on the Ringer Podcast Network on the Ringerverse. I am Van Lathan, one half of Higher Learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay, and also or Rachel Lindsay and Van Lathan depending on who you like more. Uh, or And, of course, I'm one half of the Midnight Boys or one-fourth of the Midnight Boys uh, on the Ringerverse. This was fantastic, Charles. I hope that you can come back next week and do this with us again. Yo, I would love to. Great com- great combo. And, yo, shout out Mike Worgen for uh, all of his uh, hard work producing this episode. Mike Worgen. I call him the Playmaster. <laughs> Woo! Woo! All right. Bye-bye.